Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And glad to be joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director of the same Texas Politics Project. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me back. Well, it is nice to see you here in the studio. It's almost beginning to feel like a normal thing again. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that summer just started, so it feels like a normal thing, but in the way that I like right. it. And now we're going to take a break for three weeks, well. which we'll get back to. Um, <laughs> exactly. But diving into it, last week we we talked with our esteemed colleague and longtime collaborator, Jaren, Darren Shaw, about the April UT Texas Politics Project poll. We went through a lot of results in that, mm-hmm. but, you know, with three of us, you know, weighing in it we don't we don't always cover yeah uh, a, a lot of ground per se at least scope of the poll some depth and, and the poll was very and the poll was a big one and had a lot of interesting stuff in it you know we ran over a little bit had a good chat um but there was a lot in that poll and a lot that we didn't talk about last week or going to in much depth so um i, I want to dive back into the poll but with some you know some current events pegs um and i think education is a good place to start we we had a few education items in that poll, but the ones we had, I think were pretty potent. And and there are a couple of things immediately in the news that we can talk about. Let's start with uh, the local elections that took place over the la- this past weekend. Um, one of the outcomes was wins by conservatives in some of the big exurban and rural districts in the state, particularly North Texas. Right. Um, and there was a good Dallas Morning News story that you were quoted in. Um, that really did seem to reflect some of our polling results, but through the filter, as you pointed out in the story yeah. of very low turnout, localized elections. Right. And, and not, and, and in a part of the state that's really not terribly representative of, of really even many other parts in the state. I mean, I would say, I mean, if you think about kind of the, the political trajectory that we've been talking about in the suburbs in Texas, that's sort of is the story of which is about sort of increasing democratic competitiveness in these areas. But if we talk about what are like the suburbs that are sort of the Republican strongholds in the state, these are the counties that's, you know, encircle Dallas and circle Fort Worth. And these are really the, where the focus was on these, on these school board elections. Right. right. And, they, and these were North Texas counties that we're talking about. Right. North Texas counties around Dallas uh, and Fort Worth. And in particular, you know, the reason that there was a lot of attention going into these races, because essentially, you know, a conservative business owner, slash activist or what have you basically pledged to contribute about a half million dollars uh, to the election of sort of a slate of conservative candidates up there uh, across multiple school districts, actually. And then I think there were some reinforcing support from some other parts, but they had, you know, basically professional campaign consultants. They were spending, you know, let's say, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in races where candidates usually raise, you know, maybe a thousand or a couple <laughs> thousand dollars. And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's sort of two things going on here. I mean, on the you know, on the one hand, I'd say there's definitely you know something going on in education politics in the state and the way that attitudes towards education are being mobilized around the election, right? right? 
And then there's sort of, you know, the results of this race, these races and sort of, and, and the wins by, again, the most, almost the entirety of the conservative slate. And, you know, let's just say this right now, when, whenever we get these questions, whenever an election comes by about, you know, well, what does this tell us about everything? You know, I can't help but being like someone thinking of a survey statistician and say, well, how representative is the election of the people you say that it's, you know, telling you something about, right? right? And in this case, we're talking about a Saturday election in May, <laughs> Right. right. And very, you know, you were calling them, they're suburban, but, you know, also kind, yeah, of, kind of exurban districts. So these are relatively homogenous districts, you know, and, and particularly that region that has been kind of ground zero for yeah. conservative politics in the state. I mean, I think because of like my data perspective, sometimes I can be a little bit heavy handed with my categorizations because I'll rely on the counties a little bit more than I should, yeah. especially with these school districts, which, you know, I mean, like, you know, well, these are, and these are the, 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 and these counties are the counties where, they are both suburban and exurban. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and I think people can kind of underestimate this, too, especially when you're talking about school districts. I mean, Travis County, I know just for various reasons, I think has five or six different school districts in it where Austin is. So just yeah. as an example, this is, you know, there's a lot of school districts in Texas. But the point is, is do these, you know, sort of very low turnout, off-year elections? And then the other question I said, you know, is there a big resource, uh, you know, uh, uh inequality here right and again right. we had one side that was there's something distinctive about the resources that get yeah right right or so the, you, i see what you saying balance between two sides yeah so. so you've got you know one side spending five hundred thousand dollars and you've got the other side where maybe all of the candidates combined you know in opposition spent less than a hundred i'm sure so needless to say not terribly reflective of stuff but but then the question is well how else do we know it's not reflective and part of it is we've asked all these questions right and so we've been asking questions about some of these sort of issues du jour around public education in particular parental involvement uh you know people's feelings about the uh teaching of race uh you know i think sexual identity yeah i would say more tangentially sexuality. to this a little bit sexuality and sexual identity right and what we find and we found this you know we've been doing this now because the education issue has increased in salience i mean we obviously regularly pull about education but what we tend to find is you know, I would say in terms of the direction that Republicans are taking this debate, you know, I would say we find, you know, at best a certain amount of ambivalence and it, you know, and at worst for the Republican sort of direction of this, probably, you know, slight majority opposition in some of these spaces. But the main thing is like a lot of this is really new, right? Right. And so, you know, that's the other piece of this is, you know, finding kind of the most activated, uh, engaged voters on the one hand in a small election where you have a bunch of resources, not a heavy lift. The thing yeah. that I'm kind of looking at ahead in, in an electorate that favors your your activism. Yeah, in an electorate that favors your well, and I would say I should say this too. I mean, I think we've said this before, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it, which is and also on an issue that the Democrats have been stymied by. I mean, you know, our cluster of right. issues the Democrats have been stymied by. And there's not a counter there's not a counter message that's been that's sort of been apparent the Democrats have really mobilized in response to basically greater calls for parental involvement. They can't say, well, we think actually parents should have less say over their children. You know, right. it's like, uh, well, know. and in fact, there's, you know, there's the, obviously the prominent example of, you know, when people have said that out loud, mm -hmm. like Terry McCall, yeah. they've really, you know, they've taken a, they've taken a, a beating for it. And, and often, you know, I would say not substantively, but rhetorically kind of deserved it. I mean, that this is something you have to obviously approach with some care in your messaging. Well, yeah, and I would say, and the other thing I would say is, you know, what Democrats could say is they could say, hey, look, you know, looking at our 
polling again or anybody say, hey, look, you know, Texans have consistently failed to rate the Texas public education system as a high quality system, right? You can look at how, you know, our per, per pupil spending, you can look at a lot of different metrics. Generally, when people talk about the Texas education system, it's not to say, boy, this is a great public education system. Democrats could make the argument. That, In hey, fact, we poll and what they say is it's pretty good. Yeah. It's good. It's good enough. You know, but the thing about Democrats, they could say, hey, look, you know, after all of the COVID related learning loss, you know, the fact is, you know, with all the inflation going on, you know, these aren't the issues we should be talking about. Right. But the problem is, is even I mean, this is just a basic kind of psychology, politics, messaging thing. But even this, you still have to acknowledge the arguments that they are making that you still don't have an answer for right. if you're Democrats. Well, you know, uh, to continue on education for another beat or so, I mean, one of the things, you know, we've been talking about, we've talked about it in the podcast, yeah. you know, we've now polled on this. Yeah. few times, I guess, uh -huh. right? Um, you know, asking the parental involvement question, you know, a variation of, you know, the teaching racism in the classroom, et cetera, um, and, and whether parents should be involved in that. We've also, not directly related to this, but certainly of a piece, talked about one of the one of the weaker points that mm -hmm. that Republicans have launched on this, and that is the the school library book monitoring. You know, but I, I was trying to remember when it was. On the podcast a month or two ago, we talked a bit about, you know, the theory that this was really the leading edge. You know, not that these issues in and of themselves don't generate political momentum within mm -hmm. a certain co political cohort, partisan ideologically, but also that this was also smoothing the way for a more traditional uh, Republican and conservative issue in public education um, that has not always been overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly popular, but it's divided the electorate, and that is vouchers. Right. Right. And, you know, a shoe dropped on this last night mm -hmm. in that, you know, Greg Abbott speaking in San Antonio promised to support full funding of public ed, but also added that they wanted to, you know, to paraphrase, they wanted to revisit vouchers. Right. And, you know, the, the language quoted in the first, in the quorum report. Uh, blast that first broke this last night. Empowering parents, this is a quote from Abbott, empowering parents means giving them the choice to send their children to any public school, charter school, or private school with state funding following the student. And that's why a minute ago, when you talked about kind of student empowerment, I was like, no, we've, we've seen this language before. Right. It's just in a different kind of setting. And should also say that, you know, this was really picked up with a lot of context and a good piece in the Houston Chronicle this morning, we're recording this on Tuesday, may have po posted late last night, but I think it was this morning, uh, by Edward McKinley. I would urge people to look at that because it does a, a good job of putting together the issues that we're talking about that are kind of on the table in these school board elections, but then putting together a larger package that includes and in, in vouchers. And so I want to mention that in part is like, hey, you know, I've told you so. But also, I will say, I, I didn't think that they would necessarily pull the trigger on that this quickly. I thought they would let it simmer on the back burner with these other big issues, yeah. you know, the other, I shouldn't say big issues, with these other hot issues of parental involvement and, you know, quote unquote CRT and books and libraries, and then use that to smooth the way within the context of the COVID stuff. Mm. Um, and, 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 and let this other shoe drop once the session started. Uh, I think they've probably done some polling. And, and look, the polling we just did did show a little bit of movement on this. We wouldn't, it's one of those things. Yeah. We wouldn't call it a trend. No. It was a result that followed a result from, I think, a few years ago, right? Yeah. And yeah. It's not, yes. Right. And so, 
you know, uh, but uh, but you know, it is there. Yeah. So, okay, I want to. So let me tell you what the result is. Let's get yeah. that out, and then I want to go back right. to your point because I think it's. I think it's. I, I, I agree with you, and I. But it's a little. I have a little bit of a different view on it. Yeah. It's probably they're probably probably consistent. But anyway, in our most recent poll, we 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 don't talk about vouchers because vouchers is a loaded term. So if you that's basically yeah, for a long time the voucher people actually now the voucher yeah. people don't use the term voucher. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about become s- a negative coding. Yeah. Right. It's it's a pro choice position. <laughs> so we ask about redirecting state tax revenue to help parents pay for some of the costs of sending their children to private or parochial schools. Now we include some of the costs because in a lot of cases, the money that would follow a student is not going to cover the total cost. So we don't want to misrepresent that. The idea here is, you know, Abbott only mentions private schools, but a big part of this is going to be parochial schools as well, sure. for sure. So anyway, in the most recent poll, we found that uh, plurality, 45% of Texans were supportive of redirecting the, ra- the tech- state tax revenue. 40% were opposed. Unsurprisingly, 59% of Democrats were opposed, but 25% were in support. Among Republicans, 61% supported, 27% opposed. The dynamic that kind of comes up most often when we talk about this in the legislature is the difference between urban, suburban, and rural voters. But here, you know, we find less difference, I think, than we used to in some, in, to some extent, although, you know, they look pretty comparable. I mean, you have pluralities of both urban, suburban, and rural voters say they would support vouchers. Urban voters are almost even, 43 support, 41 oppose. Republicans are su- suburban, similar, 45, 41. Rural, a little more supportive, which kind of aligns with the partisanship that we're seeing that sort of right. has a geographic component. So 48 support, 35 oppose. So, you know, I mean, it's not an issue you win an election on or you build a campaign on, obviously, right? right? Now, you were saying before, you know, you were surprised that they moved so fast and you let this and that they didn't let these sort of other, you know, cluster of issues simmer. And I think what's interesting is, one, how quickly they've taken this cluster of issues and sort of manifested it into a state level kind of policy responses, which, yeah. which I think is, you know, and this is, again, I've said before, I think this is the best time to do it because I actually think you are going to find a number of Democrats who are going to say, yeah, go ahead. At the same, right. you know, I mean, just because I mean, in a very natural, non, you know, big picture sense, but in a localized sense. But the other thing I was thinking about with this is, you know, people were saying, you know, we we're talking about this yesterday. Well, you know, okay, so they've had all this success now. You know, does this portend anything for November? And I said, you know, this is. I feel this way in a weird way, like I feel about the abortion issue in some sense. Now, you in the last podcast, you know, used the dog catches car reference for yeah. the abortion reluctantly. Now I saw. Now, now I've seen it everywhere. Why is it? And I've seen a very conservative, very pro-life Republican state legislator use the same term about basically Republicans' position, having found this, right. having found themselves here. So now I feel like it's totally justified for anybody. It was pretty to, fresh when we when we were talking about yeah. it last week, and it felt like maybe it was a little too soon. No, but I think once you have, you know, it's just my sensitivity. Con, yeah, no, you're well, you're very sensitive. So now that you have, you know, conservative Republican House member saying, "Yeah, we caught the car." It's like, okay, we can all we can all acknowledge that. But I think, you know, so in thinking about, you know, the the response going forward, I think part of this is saying, okay, well, now if the court is going to say, okay, states, it's up to you. Well, how the state responds becomes part of how we're going to have to incorporate the impact of that decision into the 2022 election. The thing about. That, though, is that's going to be a response that's driven at the state level with all of the resources that Abbott and Patrick can bring to bear on that, all the message testing, all the polling. The thing about local school board races is this is not necessarily the same quality or caliber of elected official as your statewide candidates, right? And so now you have a bunch of school boards who have been stocked with ideologues. These are not ideological positions. These are really, you know, nuts and bolts, like constituent. They they weren't. Well, they weren't. But that's the point, though. These are nuts and bolts, constituent facing positions where it's pretty easy to mobilize, again, an angry slice of that electorate. But then the reality is, is that, you know, if these school boards start going ahead and implementing, let's just say, who knows what 
in the advancement of sort of the things that they've ran ran on, that's going to happen in the fall. Yeah. And I would say that's possible that then you see a backlash in some of these communities if they go too far too fast on a lot of these issues where one, people are still trying to figure it out, but also the... Whereas, you know, at the state level, when you talk about the manifestation of this into sort of a school voucher, school choice, whatever discussion, that's a discussion I think that, again, we knew we were heading towards. Yeah. We knew that there was, you know, again, a d desire to do that among the leadership, and they're prepared to have that discussion. What goes on in these school boards in these competitive suburbs now that you've basically stocked it with these people, that's a big open question. Could become a new factor. So that's why I would say, you know, yeah, I agree with you, but on the one hand, I almost go on a different side. Like, I think it's actually a way to take control of the discussion a little bit before it gets out of hand. But, you know, just yeah, a theory. I wonder. Yeah, well, sure. The flip side of that, I'll just say, you know, another way that it kind of relates to, well, anyway, no, let's, yeah. let's, let's leave it there. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sitting here pondering that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, they may have just thought that, that it was better to do this all along and I just, yeah, was, sure. I was just wrong, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. um, but I, you know, I, the other thing I do want to touch on on that is, is that we were talking about before we started recording is the interesting sort of the the tension between what I'm going to call the rural kind of elite, traditional rural elite position on vouchers. Right. Which has been to be dead set against it. Right. And it's part of the, the lore of the legislature that one of the reasons that you can never pass a voucher bill, no matter how much energy there is among some fairly powerful interest groups mm -hmm. within the Republican Party is that it can't get past the interests of the rural, you know, the rural legislators' interpretation of their interests, particularly in the House, right? In both parties, in in both parties, but there aren't any yeah. rural Democrats left. So, um, well, historically, know, I've seen the historical, one. yeah, lore, but historically, though. yeah, and so, you know, it's an interesting in terms of other broader issues that we're talking about mm -hmm. that among voters, you know, is this a Yet another instance of a growing tension between what some elites in the Republican Party want and what rural voters are responding to in terms of ideological queuing and, right. you know, their application of these, you know, very powerful cues about CRT and mm -hmm. education. Because you know, I would argue that in a lot of ways, I mean, certainly if you're a parent and you're an activist parent, yeah, you this may very well feel like a matter of direct interest in terms of what your child is being taught in school. But we also know that there is a, you know, a lot of older republic older Republicans presumably with not kids that don't have kids in school anymore right. that are responding through from a different ideological or political perspective and context here. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I mean, you know, we go through this all the time. We don't, you know, the kind of with kids without kids thing doesn't really work very well given our data set. And we've often seen that there isn't that much yeah, difference. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean... But on this, I wonder if there, if there is. Yeah. And I, and I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know. But, I mean, there's something interesting going on there in terms of the fact that, you know, the polling on, some, on, on this issue, on the times that we've asked, has generally, at the voter level, not matched what you hear from inside the legislature and inside the political arena. Yeah about what you know why what you know why you can't get vouchers to now it's traditionally been an you know kind of an alliance between rural and you know rural now rural republicans and urban democrats yeah but you've also seen some very high level 
urban democratic defections, they're still apostate people, mm-hmm. you know, you can, and there are a lot of reasons that one can derive this. I'm thinking of, you know, Harold Dutton in Houston. Yeah. Well, you know, now again, Harold is kind of a, a, in many ways, a bit of an outlier in the democratic caucus or mm-hmm. representative Dutton, but nonetheless, that's why, he, that's why he has had the position he had on education. Right. But, um, but, but it does, you know, again, I don't want to, you know, do what we always tell people not to do, which is overinterpret this result. But I am, I think it's fair to wonder, and you kind of, you know, alluded to this in passing, yeah. just how much the experience of the pandemic shifted some of the attitudinal terrain, particularly among people with kids in schools mm-hmm. when it comes to public ed. And we've talked about that a little bit, maybe not on the podcast. Yeah. No, I mean, well, the flip, I mean, the flip side, I've been doing it in sort of a, I've been doing it in a half jokey negative sense from the, you know, the, the potential for democratic openness to basically, you know, uh, probably certain Republican parents in their districts, you know, taking their kids elsewhere. At the same time, though, you know, we've just gone through this humongous disruption where, you know, a bunch of the, what you would think of as urban Democrats might not be living in urban areas anymore, or the people who move to yeah. Texas aren't necessarily moving to city center. And the idea of more flexibility with education dollars might, you know, sound attractive. But, you know, just... In- I mean, I mean, you know, people had an experience with more flexibility in yeah. making education. I mean, at some basic literal yeah. level, a lot of people have now more experience in thinking about their kids' learning as more than, I get my kid up in the morning, yeah. I pack them up, I send them to school. Right. They come home. They have to do a bunch of homework. I help them with it. I don't help them with right. it. They do it on a computer, a pad, books, whatever. But, you know, that model, a lot of different things have happened in the last few years. Right. And so it's interesting. I mean, there's a bunch of, I mean, there's so many interesting things here based on what you just said in this discussion that the cross currents are kind of amazing when thinking about the previous like discussions that have gone on about this. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, you know, you think prior discussions, you know, I can picture Dan Patrick talking about how, you know, well, the, the rich parents just already have school choice. And it's, you know, this is for the right. for the non-white kids and the poor kids and, you know, in Texas, almost really talking to the, you know, it's a way to kind of create a wedge in the Democratic coalition. Right. But in some ways, it's almost like you'd say, well, actually, this is say, well, actually, you know, it's actually the, the sort of well-off college-educated, you know, remote-working pair of tech Democrats now, right, who say like, hey, maybe you want your kids to have the same kind of educational flexibility that you have with your work. Or whatever. Right. I mean, there's just sort of the different things. The other side of the that I also think is kind of a weird kind of cross currents is I mean, you mentioned in thinking about where Republicans were on the immigration issue on this sort of cluster of sort of really I would just cluster it describe it as like culture war like sets of education issues in yeah. the school. In some ways, you know, it's interesting because you've gone from a set of issues that, you know, I think the the boundaries are a little bit sharper and potentially a little bit more dangerous if you go too far, potentially. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you know, when you're talking about it, you've got all the energy in the world, which is part of what this like these election results are about. Right. I mean, you can talk about, you know, the future, you know, the nature, you know, the the nature of the nation's future and children's souls and their education. Right. And in some ways, you're almost saying like and not to say that they're not still going to take on these issues. We're not going to have further, you know, CRT bills or whatever in the legislature next session. But by shifting the, you know, the education lift to a voucher program, which would be a heavy lift, I think, in some ways, you're almost neutering a lot of that argument. You're saying, well. And not that you can't do both, but in some ways, like, yeah, no, children's futures are important, but what if we just, like, give them the chance to go somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, Which I, is you also, know, you know, that's the soft sell, but I, I I think we're past the moment of the soft sell. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's that's another interesting aspect well, of this, I mean, right? I mean, I think it's going to be hard to turn, I'll put it this way. I think it's going to be hard to like turn the spigot off on CRT and, you know, quote unquote CRT and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, greedy teacher unions and, right. you know, I mean, and, and it's, and it's, it's, I guess the interesting thing to watch will be how salient will this, will the kind of ideologically charged frame yeah. that Republicans have put on the public education issue through discussion of critical race theory and curriculum and parental choice and all this. Yeah. Will that, um, will that make the issue more salient for voters that are voting not on the substance of public education, right. but on those issues. And when I see that voucher result again i don't want to overinterpret it but it does make me think that you know if you move if you make this issue more salient and mm-hmm. more of a you know more of a test of party law of you know republicanism and conservative bona fides for your older activist mm-hmm. ideologically driven conservative republican voter at the same time that you have people that were more, for various kinds of reasons, more likely to reject out of hand the notion of, of vouchers, and for similar reasons, yeah. right? I mean, you know, partisanship, partisan framing of that on the Democratic side is also a real thing. Mm-hmm. Between those two things, is you know, ha- has the ground shifted? And I, you know, I don't know, but I think, I think, I suspect that. I mean, I, my interpretation would be not so much, you know, per your earlier kind of speculation. I know you're not putting this in the bank, but, yeah. you know, I think it's more likely that Team Abbott and the statewide officials see the opportunity now and feel like they have softened the ground mm-hmm. rather than wanting to move away from the other stuff. I, I They seem pretty comfortable with the more ideological arguments. I think they probably see them as pretty... Uh, it, as part of a successful strategy. And I suspect that there are advisors and entrepreneurs that have been pushing this yeah. that are encouraging that that interpretation, you know, inside. Yeah, I think the difficult, I mean, look, we should wrap this up soon. I mean, I think the difficulty that they face with that, you know, I mean, look, there's a lot of advantages to it, which one, you're the majority party in the state and you turn out more voters on the other side regularly. So right. full stop. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, what's interesting in this moment is, and I, I still, you know, there's a lot of ways in which, you know, sort of the, the way with the, the abortion movement and then the sort of aggressive move potentially in the education space. I think you do lay the ground for a potential backlash when you're playing in a space where it seems like in most instances, either, you know, you're breaking even with voters on the issue or a plurality or slight majority kind of oppose the area that you're working in. Yeah. And so, yeah, it may activate, you know, the majority of the majority party voters, but, you know, I think once you start, you know, and we always say this, once you start getting into schools, and start messing with kids and, you know, you're you're activating a large constituency of people who probably weren't going to show up on May 7th for like a random school board right. race in Carrollton. But if the school boards, you know, in a couple places or even multiple places start, you know, going, you know, beyond what, the pale, beyond the pale way. and some, which, again, has kind of already happened in some instances. Yeah. Right. You know, then you're activating the, the everybody else. Right. And, you know, again, we've seen this happen before. It doesn't mean that Republicans lose the election, but it could make, you know, for a closer haircut. Right. It, it's it's easy to underestimate counter-mobilization. I mean, when you look at your own mobilization yeah. and it seems successful and you're feeling it, 
I, I think there is sometimes a tendency to miss that there's a counter mobilization potential in what you're doing. And what I'd say is, you know, and as much, you know, research and resources as the, you know, Abbott and Patrick and all of them have to look at this stuff, you know, more, most often from what I've seen, from what they release and what they show, they're testing messages, messages and they're testing and their, and their primary focus is the, how that message lands among their voters. Yeah. And so that's where I said, like, yeah, they may go like, hey, we're happy doing something. I mean, you know, Dave Carney's had plenty of tweets where he said, hey, we're happy having this this discussion. We'll do it. It's like, yeah, yeah I mean, look, I, it's very easy to write a message that you're going to get 70, 80 percent of people to say, like, yeah, we shouldn't be teaching, you know, second graders how to, you know, how to transition. Like, whatever. Yeah, get it. <laughs> we get it. But like, that's not that's not the real environment that we're going to be in. And right. so, I, you know, that's why I'm a little bit more cautious about, you know, in terms of thinking that this necessarily is like so obvious for them as a as an advantage, at least well, not I, as confident as they seem to be. And, and, and I think Dave Carney and the Republicans right now, and with some degree of justification, are pretty confident though in yeah. their ability to drive those messages in a way and and to and to drown out counter messages. Yeah, I think so. Right. Well, and, and well, and the thing is, the counter messages are not only going to be drowned out by the messaging that they're going to be placing, but also the messaging on all the bigger issues we've been talking about, like the economy. Right. about the border. So this is even just this is this is secondary. All right, well that was a good talk about education. Um and you know there's we'll we'll be back. I mean, I you know, we were going to talk about a couple other things, but I think it makes sense to have like, you know, aired that out a little bit cuz there's yeah. going to be a lot going on and we're going to there's going to and, and it is, you know, I mean, it is interesting from an inside perspective that they are that the team Abbott is testing you know, moving, you know, the messaging on vouchers. Now, right now, I think, frankly, they want to talk about anything that's not abortion. Yeah. But nonetheless, still interesting. So we'll leave that as a teaser. <clears throat> a programming note, uh, I'll be out of the loop for a few weeks. Uh, so the podcast will be on hiatus, but we'll be back probably the first week of June. You know, classes will be started again for summer. Uh, we'll have a podcast audience there. I should be back and hopefully decently rested. So thanks to Josh and to our excellent production team in the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio here at UT Austin. You can find all the data we referenced today and much, much more, including all these education results we talked about today and, and more, uh, at the Texas Politics Project website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening and be well. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.